In the 11th chapter of Hebrews, verse 10, it says, By faith Abraham looked for a city that hath foundations, whose builder and maker is God. The previous verse tells us a sojourn in the land of promise, dwelling in tabernacles along with Isaac and Jacob. And the verse before that says, By faith Abraham, when he was called to go into a land, and he should receive for an inheritance, obeyed, not knowing whither he went. Now this gets us into the call of Abraham that we can read about in Genesis chapter 12. Abraham was called of God to leave the land he was in, to go to a land he'd never seen. It would be given to him for an inheritance. He obeyed. By faith he sojourned in that land, dwelling in tabernacles, that is tents. But our verse in verse 10 says, By faith Abraham looked for a city that hath foundations, whose builder and maker was God. Abraham was not looking for an earthly city. Abraham was looking for something far better than he had ever experienced. When you find a city and you dwell in a city, you no longer travel around living in tabernacles or tents. Tents don't have a foundation, unless you want to call the earth itself a foundation, in which all other foundations are laid. But tents basically don't have a foundation. It says he was looking for a city. His eyes were upward. This attitude of Abraham should be my attitude. The attitude of Abraham should be the attitude of the Lord's people in general. The more we look up, the looser our grip will be on the things of this world. The more we travel by faith with the hope, that is, the earnest expectation of a better place than the place we live, the less our grip, again, will be on the things that really don't matter at all. You see, we, always, we all have to handle certain things, and we need to test the grip that you have on it. Colossians chapter 3, verse 1, the Apostle Paul said, If you therefore be risen with Christ, and if you've been born of the Spirit of God, you've been risen inwardly, if you've been risen inwardly, then you have representation of the Lord Jesus Christ in His resurrection. If you therefore be risen with Christ, seek those things from above, where Christ sitteth on the right hand of God. Set your affection on things above and not on things beneath. If it were not possible for me to set my affection on things of the earth more than I should, that verse wouldn't be there. It's certainly possible I can do that. It's possible you can do that. But if you've been risen with Christ, the word if there doesn't, it doesn't indicate a condition. It means a, a fact, really. If you've been risen with Christ, then seek those things which are above. That's where Christ is at this moment. That's where Christ sits on the right hand of the majesty on high. Set your affection on things above and not on the things beneath. He will continue on in this chapter, telling us that we should lay aside the things of the old man and put on the things of the new man. Now Abraham was dwelling in tabernacles and tents along with his son Isaac and his grandson Jacob. But it says, for he looked for a city that hath foundations, foundation and approval. Now we normally think about a foundation in the singular. This church has a foundation to it. Now we really don't see the foundation because we got it covered up with uh, carpet and, you know, other things. So you don't really see it, but the foundation is the most important part of a building. It determines the strength of the building. It determines the size of the building. It determines the shape of the building. 
the Lord Jesus Christ made this plain when he closed out his Sermon on the Mount, when he said, I liken that man who heareth my sayings and doeth them to a wise man who built his house on a rock. The rock is the foundation. And when the storms came, the wind came, and the rain came, the house remained because it had a foundation under it that could, uh, un, you know, hold up under the storm. But I liken that man who heareth my sayings and doeth them not to a foolish man. Here's the difference between a wise man and a foolish man. The foolish man and the wise man both heard the word. The wise man applied the word. The foolish man did not. And he's likened to a man who built his house on the sand. And when the storm came, the house did not stand up under the storm because of a faulty foundation, you see. But here the Bible says that Abraham looked for a city. Now the word city here, as we will see a little later on, has reference, it's a word that has reference to heaven itself. There are other words in the Bible besides the word heaven that have reference to heaven. Let's take a look at John chapter 14, for example, where the Lord begins this message to his disciples. In verse 1, he says, Let not your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. For in my Father's house are many mansions. The expression, my Father's house, is an expression for heaven. In my Father's house are many mansions. The word mansion means a, a place of abode, a place to dwell. It, uh, it, get, the, get the idea out of your head about a mansion like you would normally call a mansion here in man's world. Some 30-room house with 10 bedrooms and 14 bathrooms and a five-car garage and all that kind of stuff. That's not what the Lord's talking about here. That word means, again, a dwelling place with Him, a place of abode with Him. Our Father's house are many mansions, not a few mansions. See, this verse will, will certainly destroy the idea there's only going to be a remnant of a few people in heaven. The word many does not mean few. It's the opposite. The word many means the greater part of the hold. So there must be many mansions because the Lord's people are many, as we read in Romans 8, 29, and 30. Both of whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his Son. He might be the firstborn among many brethren. And both he did predestinate them, he also called them. If he called them, he also justified them. If he justified them, he also glorified. What shall we then say to these things of God before us? Who can be against us? We will notice in a passage I want to go to here a little further on in this chapter, in verse 13 and 14, that the word country is going to be used to express heaven itself. In fact, we go to verse 13. It says, these all died in faith. Now, they couldn't die in faith. They didn't have faith. These, these all died in faith, having not received the promises. God gave them promises, but they didn't live long enough to see the fulfillment of these promises. But it says, they saw them afar off. By our faith... They saw them afar off. God delivered the truth to them. They didn't experience what the Lord said during their earthly stay. But they saw them afar off, and they were persuaded of them. What God tells you, you can be persuaded of. All the things I hear every single day, I'm persuaded of very little of them. I'm persuaded they're wrong. I'm persuaded uh, they don't know what they're talking about. That's the kind of persuasion I get from that. But in the Word of God, we can be persuaded. Whatever God's Word says, we can be persuaded in that. They saw them afar off. They were persuaded of them. Being persuaded says they embraced them. I, I love this language here. All right. And then they confessed they were pilgrims and strangers here in this world. Now, it says the next verse, those that say such things, that tells me that everybody doesn't say such things. 
You're not going to find everybody confessing they're a pilgrim and a stranger here in this world. But there are some who do. I hope that's my language. I feel to be a stranger and a pilgrim here in this world. How about you? You know, a stranger, somebody away from home. See, you're not at home. Heaven is your home. That's where you have citizenship. As a pilgrim, you may be here and there, you know, a pilgrim is somebody on a journey. And so the Lord's people are not at home and they're on a journey. And Abraham and all those who died in faith, having not received the promise, but having seen them afar off, and were persuaded of them and embraced them, then they confessed they were pilgrims and strangers here in this world. Peter starts off his first letter like this. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to the strangers scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, and Asia. He wasn't talking about being strangers to that point he had never met them. He's talking about they felt to be strangers here in this world. They didn't feel at home in the world, you see. He further identifies them as saying, elect according to the foreknowledge of God, through sanctification of the Spirit, under obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. You come to the second chapter. I believe it's about verse 11. The apostle Peter here says, he addressed them as pilgrims and strangers. And then he says, you should abstain from the lust of the flesh that war against the soul. Uh, there's something that wars against your soul. It's called the flesh, the lust of the flesh. He says, abstain from that. He gives them instruction to do it. How does he address them? Pilgrims and strangers. In Genesis chapter 23, you'll find where Abraham is speaking to um, a Gentile king on this occasion. And he tells him, he says, I'm a pilgrim and a sojourner here in this world. Uh, well, I believe a stranger and a sojourner here. The sojourner would be like the pilgrim. What was the answer that Jacob gave unto Pharaoh? We find later on in the book of Genesis. Uh, Jacob says unto Pharaoh, Pharaoh asked him how old he was. He says, I'm 130 years of age. He says, in the days of my pilgrimage have been few and evil. Jacob says, I've been on a pilgrimage here for 130 years. He would live 17 more. He passed away at 147. So it's they that say such things. It's a language associated with the Lord's people that believe the truth and understand their situation on this earth in their hope of, of that vastly improving when they depart this world. This is their language. They that say such things. He said, if they had been mindful of the country in which they came out, might have had opportunity to have returned. Now, where did, where did Abraham come from? He came from the land of the earth of the Chaldees. If he had been mindful of that country, the question itself implies he was not. If he'd been mindful of that country, if he thought about that country, if he considered that country, if it dwelt on his mind where he came from, and he viewed it and esteemed it higher than the country God led him to, he might have had opportunity to went back. He could have. He knew the way. He knew how to get back. The inhabitants of the land of Canaan would not have discouraged him from leaving and going back. And no doubt he had friends and neighbors, old friends and neighbors back there in the land there of the Chaldees that would have welcomed him back. But see, he found a better land in the land of Canaan than where he left. He was not mindful of that country. Now, what kind of attitude do I have and do we all have? Are we mindful of where we once were? Are we mindful of the time in our experience, perhaps, when we look back and we didn't have the desire to go to the house of God like you had this morning? You wouldn't be here if you didn't have the desire to be here today. 
but you had a desire to be here, do you look back and think, well, I don't know, those days back before, you know, when I'd have found other things to do on, the house, uh, on Sunday rather than going to the house of God. If you're mindful of that, you might have opportunity to return to that. And some have, unfortunately. Some have. But I can tell you what you left <laughs> is nothing compared to where you're at now. All right? But if that verse wasn't there, I mean, if, we, if it wasn't possible, that verse wouldn't be there. Take a look at Israel's history. When they came out of the land of Egypt, God brought them out of the land of Egypt, crossed the Red Sea with intent and purpose to bring them into the land of Canaan. He brought them out to bring them in. How long did it take for them to ever get in? Over 40 years. Was that God's fault? No, it wasn't. It was judgment of God. God got them in there in about 11 days. But it took them 40 years because of unbelief. And you read some of their experiences. It goes like this. We remember when we sat beside the flesh pots. We remember the leeks and the garlic and the onions and the melons, etc. They were mindful, won't they, of that country they came out of. They even said, let us make a, a new leader. We don't know what's happened to this Moses because he went to the mountain to meet with God and disappeared for a while. We don't know what's happened to this man. Let us have a new leader and let's go back where we came from. Now, they, they didn't because God was going to bring them into the land of Canaan, which he did 40 years later. But it says, they that say such things, if they had been mindful of the country they came out of, might have had opportunity to return. They could have. They knew how to get back. They knew the way. The inhabitants of Canaan's land probably would have encouraged them to leave the land and go back. And the people where they left would have welcomed them back. But they were not mindful of that. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob were not mindful of that country, thank God. And they set forth this wonderful example. It says, for now they seek a country a better country that is a heavenly whereby God is not ashamed to call their God for he hath prepared for them a city now this is a prepared city it's under consideration here now when I look at biblical cities there was something these biblical cities all had in common now when you think about a city as it's recorded in the Bible don't think about Atlanta and Chicago and New York and Nashville and cities like that that's not what the cities look like you had villages, and villages were smaller than cities, obviously, uh, and the main distinction between a village and a city was the city had a wall and the village did not. And so the walls were for their protection, of course. Walls of these cities were oftentimes 20 to 30 foot wide, 15 to 20 foot t tall. The walls of Jericho, the most famous walls of a city we found according to the Word of God. And those walls all came tumbling down, of course, when, uh, you know, they followed the instructions of the Lord. He marched around that city, Joshua and them, seven times. Uh, one day a day for seven, six days and seven times on day number seven. Cities back in that day, they, they had walls. They were built on the side of a mountain on top of hills because that gave them some strategy. They could see further out that way and it gave them some protection. And it had to be near a good water supply and preferably the land was very fertile for their cattle and to grow their crops. That's uh, where the cities, you know, developed. And then sometimes there'd be little villages around the city. And those in those villages around the city oftentimes would lean upon the, those in the city for protection, which they were glad to give for a price. Man always got a price. <laughs> you can just rest assured of that. There's always a price tag associated with the things of men. But that's kind of a view of a biblical city. They would have bulwarks and towers on the walls, have watchmen on the walls, and they would all have gates. 
Sometimes you'd have a city, it might have a moat around it. Now we normally think about castles having moats, but that wasn't always true. There was other, uh, there were cities that were not castles that sometimes had moats around them, and that was all designed for their protection. Now the Lord bars from this to give us several truths. Look in Jeremiah 2.18, the Lord tells Jeremiah that he's going to encounter those that are going to fiercely oppose him. He said, but I have made you a defensed city. He says, you will have, pillar, it will have pillars of iron and brazen gates. He speaks about the city being a defense city. And he speaks about it having pillars. The pillars will be of iron and there will be gates to the city. And those gates will be brazen gates made out of brass, in other words. He says, that's what I'll be to you. He says, they will oppose you. They will try to take you, but they will not be successful. In Isaiah chapter 26, one of, been one of my favorite passages for many, many years. In that day shall this song be sung in the land of Judah. A song is going to be sung, won't be sung worldwide, won't be sung in every place. It's going to be sung in a certain place, be sung in the land of Judah where Jerusalem was, which was a city that God had appointed. This song should be sung in the land of Judah. What's the name of the song? We have a strong city. Have a strong city. Salvation hath God appointed for walls and bulwarks. Let the righteous nation that keepeth the truth enter through the gates thereof. Isaiah speaks about a city that has walls, it has bulwarks, it has gates. And there's a righteous nation that keeps the truth and the gates are open for that righteous nation. The gates aren't open for just in and everybody. It's open for the righteous nation that keepeth the truth. They're welcome into this city. The Lord, Isaiah says, concerning the Lord, uh, saying this song in the land of Judah, we have a strong city, salvation, deliverance, hath God appointed for what? For walls and bulwarks. A bulwark was a tower on the wall again, where those on the inside of the city could hide behind, they could shoot their arrows from behind the bulwarks, uh, they could hurl their stones, etc., and also gave them protection from the ammunition of the enemy. The Lord says, I will be your bulwark, I will be your tower. If you read the opening verses of Psalm 18, David speaks like this concerning the Lord. He said, the Lord is my refuge, he's my salvation, he's my deliverance. It says, he's my tower, he's my fortress, he's my bulwark. Now, David understood something about cities, and he says, these things are so important to a city, that's what God is to me, you see. God has appointed uh, salvation, uh, the walls of salvation here in this city that's under consideration. Now, here are some the natural cities of that day, cities that's built by men. And notice when it says, and Abraham looked for a city that hath foundations, whose builder and maker is God. That's in contrast to the very first city I find in the Bible is recorded in Genesis chapter 4. In Genesis chapter 4, you find Cain, who slew his brother Abel, says he built a city and he named it after his son. Abraham's not looking for such a city as that, right? Not looking for a man-made city. He's looking for a divinely made city, a God-made city. And then I read about a, a city that's found in Genesis chapter 11, where after the flood... You'll find men on this earth decided they're going to build a tower. Men in this city are going to build a tower to stretch all the way to heaven. All right, to make a name for themselves. It's a picture of man's pride. The Bible says that God came down and looked upon this scene. He didn't have to come down to see it, but that's just telling us he saw it and he just came down for a close inspection. The Lord's going to inspect this city. He sees it's nothing but the pride of men. 
the, the, this point, everybody was of, uh, of, different, I mean, of one language. God's going to confuse them. He's going to cause them to have many different languages where they can't understand one another. The place that we call Babel, which means confusion. Now remember that name Babylon, because Lord willing, he'll bless us. We'll get to it in Revelation 14 and 18 when the, there's a great city of here called Babylon. Means confusion. There's been confusion among men on this earth ever since sin came into this world. We live in a confused world today, do we not? Don't want to get ahead of myself here. What's some of the other characteristics of this city we're talking about? Now we're talking about a spiritual city. We're talking about a city that God has built. Let's go back again. Abraham looked for a city that had foundations, plural, whose builder and maker is God. God's the builder of this city. God's the maker of this city. He designed this city. He's provided this city for his people. All right, we just gave you Isaiah 26 where it says, In that day shall this song be sung in the land of Judah. We have a strong city. But I, I do want to get that, that down to about the fourth verse where it says, For trust in the Lord. He shall keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on God. Now, what kind of peace do I have today? What kind of peace do you have today? You can have peace today with everything going around you, with everything seems like it's going wrong, with all the confusion, all the disaster that we read about every single day. I'm telling you, you can still have peace today if your mind is stayed on the Lord. Thou shalt keep, he shall keep you in perfect peace. You don't keep yourself in perfect peace. He shall keep thee in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on thee. Trust in the Lord. For in the Lord Jehovah is what? Is everlasting strength. That verse is just as applicable today as it was when Isaiah penned it down about uh, 2,700 years ago. It's still up to date. The Bible's always up to date. I would like to have peace. I, I, I cannot just have peace. I can have perfect peace if my mind is stayed on him. So here we find that we have a strong city. In the book of Psalms, Psalms 46, in the opening verses, David speaks about a river whose streams shall make glad the city of God. The city of God shall be made up of people that are glad. You know, last week we spoke a little bit about being glad, what, what constitutes being glad. Well, I'm glad this morning. <laughs> uh, I don't want to be a sad sack, do you? I don't want to be a Johnny Rain Cloud. There's too many of them already out there. Them, those positions are already well taken. I don't want to be some sad sack. We mentioned about the horse's uh, face last week, the mule's face, I mean. I don't want to be some sad sack. I want to be glad. And I believe I can be glad in the house of God when my mind has stayed on God. When I think about the great truths in containing God's word, the great promises of God's word, it ought to make me glad. If it doesn't, something's wrong with my spiritual health. It says, there's a river whose streams of shall make glad the city of God. I read about this river in Revelation 22.1. When the Apostle John says, I saw a river clear as crystal proceeding from the throne of God. And in the midst of it, on either side of it, was the tree of life that bare twelve manner of fruits. Now just get the picture in your mind. Here's a river. It comes from on high. It comes down from God out of heaven. I saw a river clear as crystal. There's no sediment in this river. There's no contamination in this river. There's no trash in this river. It is totally 100% pure because it came from the hand of God. It come right down from heaven. There is a river whose streams thereof make glad the city of God. 
Now we could uh, make these streams mean a lot of things, I think, here this morning. But what makes me glad in the house of God is when I hear the truth about the eternal love of God. For the great love of God. That's a stream that makes me glad that comes from this river. Ephesians 2, 4, but God, who is rich in mercy for his great love, where he loved us, even when we were dead in trespass and sin, I know by nature I'm unlovable. I know that. I know I'm unlovable by nature. I have a nature that's unlovable, and uh, uh, I'm going to get all of you in the list too. All of you have a nature that's unlovable here this morning. I'm not going to just stand out. I'm going to get all of us. We all have a nature that's unlovable, do we not? Yet God loved the unlovable. God did the miraculous. God loved us when we were dead in trespass and sin, when we didn't have any desire for God, no love for God, no interest in God, and rather do anything in the world but come to the house of God. God loved us. That makes me glad. When I read about the fact that God foreknew me, chose me, elected me, predestinated me before time ever began, that makes me glad. To feel like that God loved me individually and personally, he, I have a living personal relationship with the Lord and Jesus Christ, that makes me glad. And I believe I have that. And you, each one of you here this morning, have a personal relationship with the Lord and Jesus Christ. It's a living relationship. It's a vital relationship. He dwells in your heart. He dwells in your soul. He made himself known to you when you didn't know him. He put his love in your heart and you had no love for him. He made himself acquainted with you. Aren't you glad he did that? Aren't you glad God got acquainted with you? <laughs> Aren't you glad God made himself known unto you? Aren't you glad God introduced himself to you in such a manner and way and that had such an impact in your heart and in your life? That only make you glad. And we could just spend the rest of our time here this morning on that. But we'll move on. There's a river whose streams of make glad the city of God. Also in the Psalms, and we have a song, a hymn we sing from time to time, Glorious things are spoken unto thee, O Zion, city of our God. When you come here, you're going to hear glorious things spoken about God. It's all about God. It's not about me. It's not about you. It's about God. Remember our verse today, Ephesians 3, 21, Unto him be glory in the church. By Christ Jesus, throughout all ages, world without end. It's all about him, you see. Glorious things are spoken about thee. Where? In the city of our God. Come to Psalms 48, verse 1. Great is the Lord, and greatly to be praised in the city of our God, the city of the great King. He's great. He's worthy of our best efforts that we can possibly give. He's worthy of great praise. Great is the Lord, and greatly to be praised. Where? In the city of our God, on the sides of the north, the city of the great King. This city I'm talking about has a king. He's a great king. Glorious things are spoken of the king here in this place. There's rivers, streams that make glad the city of God. And we have a strong city because salvation is God appointed for walls and for bulwarks. It's a wonderful place. It's a wonderful city, is it not? Different cities have different reputations. You hear a lot about Chicago in today's news almost every single day. How many people have been killed in that city? You know, there's New York City, they call the, the big apple, I call it the rotten apple, half a years. And you got all kind of uh, cities that go by different names, the Windy City of Chicago, et cetera, et cetera, those kind of things. But it, nothing compares to the city I'm talking about here. This is the Lord's city, the city that Abraham was looking for. See, I need to strive to have the attitude of Abraham. I need to be looking for that city who's who ha that hath foundations. Now, one of the foundations I like to mention from time to time, of course, is in 2 Timothy 2, 19. 
since the foundation of God stands here having this seal, the Lord knoweth them that are his. That, that's a pretty solid foundation to build on right there. To know that God knows those that are his, he should know them, he foreknew them. If he foreknew them, then he knows them. There's no better time he did not know them. The Lord's not in the dark about anything. I want you to understand that. The Lord's not just a surprise from day to day. Uh, from day to day, I hear things I didn't know the day before. God never hears anything he didn't already know. He's not surprised at anything, good or bad. He's not surprised by it. And he certainly knows how many people in his family. He's known that since before time ever began. The foundation of God stands sure, having this seal, the Lord knoweth them that are his. Indeed, he does. There are other foundations, but um, let's, let's move ahead here. You see, Abraham didn't uh, hide it, hide this fact. So while he was on this earth, he, he was in the land there the child is. He then wound up here in Canaan's land, spent a little time in Egypt. The Lord delivered him, blessed him, and get back to where he belonged to begin with, back in the land of Canaan. But he didn't mind letting people know that he believed he had citizenship in a better country. Uh, Philippians 3 and 20. He says, let our, our conversation is in heaven. The word conversation there means citizenship. For our conversation is our citizenship is in heaven from whence we look for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who shall change our vile bodies, might be fashioned like in his glorious body. Isn't that a wonderful verse? Our conversation, our citizenship is where? It's in heaven. That's why it makes you a stranger in this world. Our citizenship is in heaven. From whence, from heaven, we look for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who shall change our vile body and shall fashion like this glorious body. He has a glorious body, and one day my body will be fashioned like his glorious body because I'm looking for him and he's in heaven, and that's where my citizenship is. And Abraham knew that's where his citizenship was. Abraham knew he had an inheritance. Now, the Bible tells us Canaan was an earthly inheritance for Abraham, but he knew he had a heavenly inheritance. Most everybody at one time or another in their life might, you know, be found in a will, the parents pass away or uncle or whoever, and they might find themselves to be a, a recipient of an inheritance. But here's what Peter said in 1 Peter 1, 3. He said, Blessed be the Lord God of our uh, Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. It says, uh, who by the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ has uh, given us a lively hope. It says, and we have an inheritance that's incorruptible, undefiled, and it fadeth not away. All earthly inheritances, my friends, are defiled in one way or another. And they, are, they fade away with time. What happened to that inheritance that the prodigal son got? Remember when he asked for his share? You know, there in the book of Luke, when he came to his father and wanted his living, he didn't want to wait till his father died. No, no. He wanted it right then and there. And the father gave it to him. That was his inheritance. When he came back, how much inheritance did he have when he came back? Zero. Somebody very wealthy died one time, and somebody asked somebody else, well, do you know how much he left? The answer was, yeah, he left it all. That applies to me, you, and everybody else, right? How much did he leave? He left it all. He didn't take it with him. It always <laughs> reminds me of the little story of the man who had his most precious valuables put in the bag and he was going he felt like he died before his wife didn't say if I do it's whatever he says I'm gonna I'm gonna put this up in the attic and when I die I'm gonna grab it on my way up he died wife went there still there she said maybe I should have put it in the basement 
That's what earthly inheritance is all about. Abraham had an earthly inheritance in the land of Canaan, but he knew he had a better inheritance further on. And then we look in Hebrews 10, 34, and it says, for he knew that in heaven he had a better and enduring substance. Now, anything in the qualification of the word substance, it can be your house, it can be your clothes, any car, it can be anything and everything. I'm telling you, in heaven, you've got a better and more enduring substance. How many times have you ever heard somebody say, well, I got my new truck the other day, this will be the last one I'll ever get. He just didn't realize how long he was going to live. Three or four years later, he got him another one. <laughs> you know, in this life, everything we have deteriorates with time. It fades away with time. Abraham knew he had a better enduring substance in a place called heaven, but he used the word city and the word country. He says he looked for a city. He says he sought a country. He says he desired a better country where God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he had prepared for them a city, a great city, a prepared city. It's God that does all the preparing that you'll ever stand in need of to be with him in glory one day. 1 Corinthians 2.9, Paul says, For I have not seen, ear hath not heard, neither is into the heart of man those things which God hath prepared for them. I'm just glad to tell you this morning, I... I appreciate the Lord giving me this opportunity. <laughs> I'm just glad to tell you this morning that God has prepared some things for you that your eye can't see, your heart can't feel, and your ears can't hear from a natural perspective. But from a spiritual point of view, you can receive it and embrace it. I have not seen, ear have not heard, and he's in the heart of man those things which God had prepared for them that love him. If you love God this morning, there's things God has prepared for you that only the spiritual eye, spiritual ear, and the spiritual heart can see, hear, and feel. John 14, once again. In my Father's house are many mansions. Not so, I'd have told you so. And I go to prepare a place for you. And if I can prepare a place for you, I shall return and receive you unto myself to where I am. There you may be also. That would uh, that order cure an aching heart, a broke heart, uh, a sad heart, a sorrowful heart. That order cure any kind of heart condition you got this morning to know that. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. Proverbs 28, 1. The preparations of the heart and the answer of a tongue is of the Lord. I'm glad it's God who does all the preparing, aren't you? And then we have a prepared city. Only a city only God could prepare. Now, I want to spend the rest of my time going to the book of Revelation. If you're reading the book of Revelation, you start off there in chapter 1, and you work your way on, on across, and you come to the last four chapters of the book of Revelation. If you're on the Bible reading, you're going to be getting into that sometime pretty soon. When you get to Revelation, the last four chapters of Revelation, the Apostle John is beginning to bring the book of Revelation to a conclusion. He's about to bring the Bible to a conclusion. He's about to bring in prophetic form, in symbolic form, history of mankind to a conclusion. It's a glorious con conclusion. In Revelation chapter 18, it opens up talking about another city that I mentioned a little earlier. This city is called the city of Babylon. What's the first thing it's said about the city of Babylon. The opening verse is Revelation 18. It says, Babylon is fallen, is fallen. We sing a hymn, don't we, about that? Babylon is fallen, is fallen, never to rise again. That's where this is taken from. The opening verse is Revelation 18. What, what does Babylon represent? 
Well, if you keep reading there, it says it's the habitation of the devil, devils. It's the hold of every unclean spirit. It's a cage of every evil and wicked and unclean bird that there is. What kind of picture is that put in your mind? In other words, I'm going to make it real simple for you. Babylon represents everything that's totally against God. It represents all the evil, represents all the wickedness. It represents everything that opposes God in this world. That's what Babylon represents. But the good news is, my friends, Babylon is fallen. And you read a little further than that. It says Babylon is left desolate. And Babylon is being cast down. Now you just put yourself in the shoes of the, uh, the saints that the Apostle John's writing to. The Apostle John's on the Isle of Patmos. He tells in Revelation chapter 1 that he was a brother in tribulation. He understood what the tribulation was they were going through. Because they were staunch followers of the Lord Jesus Christ, disciples of the Savior, they had suffered many things at the hands of men. Economic uh, sufferings and uh, sometimes beaten, sometimes put in prison, losing their jobs, etc. They were cast down. The book of Revelation was written for them and people just like them today. If you don't read the book of Revelation, you're doing yourself a great disservice. Don't worry about figuring out all the dragons and the ten horns and the eight eyes and all that kind of stuff. You just know they represent their images of evil and wickedness. And when they oppose the Lord Jesus Christ, Jesus always conquers. Jesus always wins. As we come to the last four chapters of the book of Revelation, it's all about victory for the Lord's family. And the first thing we're told is Babylon has fallen. Babylon has fallen. That great and wicked city that has deceived and seduced so many nations and people in this world has fallen. And don't think that I and you cannot be seduced by Babylon. And don't think that we cannot be drawn in and entangled with the things of this world. It's the world system, my friends, uh, that uh, seduces you here. And they know everything to say, do they not, to attract you. Every advertisement on television is to allure you, seduce you, and attract you, and making you think you need something you didn't even know existed until you saw the commercial. And uh, some of the, the ungodly things, immoral things, my friends, uh, is presenting a life to God's people here that just is appealing to the human nature. Don't fall for it. <laughs> Don't fall for it. In the end, it's all going to be destroyed and crumble and come down to nothing. Thank God. Don't you know that encouraged those saints in that day? Babylon has fallen. All those who persecuted all the, us, all those that oppressed us, all those who misused us and abused us. The Lord himself has brought her down. Another king did not bring them down. Another nation didn't bring them down. Another king didn't bring them down. It was God Almighty that brought them down. He's omnipotent, as we find in Revelation 19, 19 and 6. The Lord omnipotent reigneth. And you come to that chapter, and I'm just going to get a little highlight here. It says, John saw heaven open. Every time in Revelation, when you read that expression, heaven was open, get ready, something good coming. And he saw heaven open. And he saw one riding upon a white horse. He had a crown upon his head, a crown of uh, uh, stars upon his head. He had a vesture dipped in blood with the writing, the word of God. He come riding upon that horse. There was armies coming behind him, arrayed in fine, white, clean linen. He says his name should be called Lord of Lords and King of Kings. That's the view he had. When heaven opened up, the first thing he describes is our glorious triumphant Lord. Our triumphant God, who's Lord of Lords and King of Kings. 
the king of the city that is under consideration here. Then you come to Revelation chapter 20. And here we read where there's angel came down from heaven with a, with a chain. And it says he laid hold upon that, that old adversary, the devil himself, Satan. And he cast him uh, into a, a bottomless pit where he's been a, a period of time. After a little season, he must be let loose. But I want you to understand here, this angel came down, was stronger than the devil was. He bound him up with this chain. He put him into a, a, this bottomless pit. He said, after a time, he must be loosed, a little season. But we're told in that chapter, blessed, and, ho blessed and, and holy are those who have part in the first resurrection, which the second death hath no power. Keep that in your mind. When he's loosed a little season, what does he do? He goes about to deceive the nations, the leaders of the nations. They're being deceived. And then he gathers them together. They come to do war against the saints and the beloved city. We talked about a prepared city. We talked about a city that hath foundations to build in maker's God. He now, John, calls it the beloved city. What, what happens here? It says, and God sent fire down from heaven and consumed them all. And Satan, the devil, was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone along with the false prophet and beast where they shall be tormented day and night forever and ever. You get that view? Satan, the false beast, and the prophets are cast into the lake of fire and brimstone and they're going to be tormented forever and ever and ever. But they're not going to be there by themselves. Others are going to join them. He said, I saw the dead small and great stand before God. It says in death, uh, the, sea kept, uh, uh, the sea gave up the dead. And the grave gave up the dead. And hell gave up the dead. And the dead on consideration, brethren, are those who are dead to God right here. I saw some books that were open and the book, which is the book of life. Two sets of, of books here, one singular, one plural. And death and hell were ca cast out or cast up. He said, they shall be judged every single one of them according to their works. You will not be judged according to your works eternally. You're judged on your works while you live in this world. God judges everything we say and everything we do. And he either blesses us or he chastises us. But when it comes to our eternal standing before God, if God judged you according to your works, you'd have no hope. But I'm telling you, I got better news for you than that. You're not judged according to your works. You're judged, you're judged according to the work of the Lord and Jesus Christ. When God sees you, he sees perfection in Jesus. When he sees you, he sees redemption in Jesus. When he sees you, you're justified by the blood of Jesus Christ. When he sees you, he sees a reconciled person by the blood of the Savior. He sees you through him. You're not judged according to your works. You're judged according to the work of Jesus. You want to reverse it? I don't think so. And he said, they all were cast in the lake of fire, which is the second death. Everyone whose names were not written in the Lamb's book of life. Your name's written in the Lamb's book of life. You have part in the first resurrection, which that second death hath no power. And then we start Revelation 21. Some beautiful language here. He's going to describe to you a city unlike any city you've ever witnessed, ever seen, or ever been part of. He said, I... He says, the old heaven and new, uh, old earth was passed away, and therefore there's a new heaven and a new earth, another expression for heaven itself. 
I saw a new Jerusalem ascend from God out of heaven. Notice all the things that God gives comes right out of heaven, like James 1.17, every good and every perfect gift cometh down from the Father of lights. I like things that come down from heaven, don't you? <laughs> I sure do. And he says, this is new Jerusalem who's prepared as a bride for her husband. As a bride for her husband. I'm going to skip over here a few more verses. Again, he's going to present the bride to her husband, the Lord Jesus Christ, to the Lamb of God. That bride, my friends, is all the elect family of God, the people of God, the chosen of God, the elect of God, the beloved of God. They're all represented by the bride here that's given to the bridegroom, the Lord Jesus Christ, the Lamb. And then he describes this city. The eternal city. I want you to think about this. This is the eternal city. It's going to be the perfect city. It's going to be a city that's occupied, occupied by perfect people who are made perfect through the blood of the Lamb. A perfect God is going to reign and rule in this perfect city. He said this city, come out, uh, uh, Abraham looked for a city that had foundations. This has got 12 of them. It's got 12 foundations. It's got 12, it's got 12 gates. And the walls of this city were great and high. Now remember, uh, the walls are for protection, right? When you do the measurement of this, these walls are 216 foot tall. 216 foot tall. And the measurement of these walls around, the city said is, uh, is four square. That means it's uh, equal on every side. It could be like a pyramid or a cube. It's equal on all sides, four square. The walls are 216 foot high. And he took a reed to measure this city. When he measured it, it was 12,000 uh, 12, furlongs. A furlong is equal to about 660 feet, which boils down to the fact it's 1,500 miles from one side to the other. If you want to measure that from Nashville, which I did this morning, Siri helped me out a little bit. I asked her for some information, and I finally narrowed it down with her help. If you left Nashville and travel west, 1,500 miles is to about the eastern border of Arizona. You're talking about a big city? This is a big city. 1,500 miles that way, 1,500 miles that way, 216 foot tall wall. It's got 12 foundations with the name of the 12 apostles. And the 12 gates, my friends, uh, are, have the names of the uh, 12 tribes of Israel. And each of these gates have 12 angels with them. Everything about this city is perfect. Nothing's out of order. Nothing's out of kilter. Everything is perfect. It'll house the entire family of God inside of it. In this city, there's no need for the sun and moon. All right, you go down to Nashville in the daytime today, you've got God's sun giving light to the city, right? You go down there tonight, and you have the lights of the city will be on based upon the electricity. But this city doesn't have the sun or the moon and all those kind of things because the Bible says there's no night there. There's no night, there's no sun, there's no moon because God's glory and the glory of the Lamb provides all the light you're going to need. The gates are left wide open. In biblical days, they had the gates open in the daytime because the watchman stood up there. If he saw the enemy coming, they had plenty of time to close the gates. Otherwise, the gates were left open. But they always close the gates at night. The gates of this city are never closed. They're always open because there's no night there. There's no night. There's no curse there. There's no curse because the Lord Jesus Christ satisfied the curse of the law of sin and death when he died on Calvary. There's no curse there. There could be no curse in the presence of God. 
You know what word ends the Old Testament? Doesn't give you a big hint. Curse. That's the last word of the Old Testament. Last word of the New Testament? Amen. <laughs> I like the way the New Testament ends, don't you? Amen. Amen to the great things of God. Here's a city. It's got 12 foundations. Here's a city that's got 12 gates. Here's a city, my friends, uh, that's 1,500 miles square, 260, walls 216 feet tall. There's no need of the moon, the sun, the stars. God is the light of it. God's the glory of it. God and the Lamb. There's no temple in this city because God's the temple of it. It's the great city of God, the eternal city of God, of which we have a taste of in the Lord's church. The city Abraham was looking for was not on this earth. His eyes were upward. Abraham was looking for a city that had foundations. I found one in Revelation 22. Whose builder and maker is God. I found one in Revelation chapter 22. It's a perfect city. The perfect God built a perfect city for perfected people. Hebrews 10, 14, For we have perfected forever them that are sanctified. Jesus Christ perfected you. Now I'm going to tell you something this, this morning. There's, a little bit, there's some holiness about each and every one. If you've been born in the Spirit of God, there's something about you that's holy. There's something about you that's righteous. There's something about you that's good. There's also something about you that's not good. There's something about you that's not holy. And there's something about you that's not righteous. That's why you have the conflict, the battle, and the warfare. But the day will come when you will be entirely holy, entirely righteous, entirely good because you stand before God in total perfection through the offering sacrifice He made on your behalf. I'm looking for the city. That city that's four square. Eternal in heaven. Now this city is said to have streets of gold and silver. I think that's symbolically speaking. This city will be occupied by people where uh, if you go and look at what's not in the city, I've been giving you some things that's not in the city. It says no sorcerers, no whoremongers, no liars, no abominations will be allowed into the city. He said for those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. There'll be no enemies. There'll be no death and no sorrow. I close from Revelation 21.4. It says, For the Lord himself shall wipe away all tears. There shall be no more death. There shall be no more sorrow. There shall be no more crying. And there shall be no more pain. That's the eternal city of God.